Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I mentioned, I believe, this past weekend that uh, as we were going through the challenges of doing live streaming without anyone here and then looking forward to a time when we were able to uh, begin to have services again, that, uh, that the Lord had placed upon my heart the lessons that we needed to take heed of in, in his word. And uh, we, as we're doing on, on the weekends, looking at Second Thessalonians, and of course we finished First Thessalonians as well. But all of it in light of what's going on in the world today, and a, an interesting book along with that, of course, is the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, even though w when you kind of look at it just on the surface, it doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, that very same kind of prophetic grip to it. But in fact, we've realized that it is very relevant to what is going on in the world today. Because what this has exposed, this pandemic, if you will, what, is, what it has exposed is an awakening to the church. And once the church becomes awakened to what is happening around us and the realization that we have to be different, that we have to be separate from the world, because, let's face it, we got complacent. And it's easy for us to get complacent when we go week in, week out, doing one thing, doing another the same way, in and out, and out and in, and, <laughs> and, what, and whatnot. But when something strikes that changes what we call normal, it makes us realize then the value of what we have as believers in Jesus Christ in the Word of God, in the Church of Jesus Christ, and in the fellowship that we're to have as saints. And I hope and pray that it has awakened us to that. Along the same line, it, what, is, what it has brought us to is to understand that there is a mentality of life that can be lived under the sun. As Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Is life really worth living? And man under the sun without God has set a course that is empty and worthless if it is indeed a course without God in, in it. In the first three chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, as the preacher, has set for us what life is like without God under the sun. He spoke of the emptiness of life under the sun without God, and he proved that in, in the ch first chapter and how transitory things are and, and, and in the, the futility of human endeavor. That endeavor is done just purely out of the flesh. will just end. And then he took us deeper into his human laboratory and he 
taught us of the emptiness of pleasure and of wealth and of work, again, under the sun without God. Much can be done without God in the world. We see many people who are millionaires and billionaires. And yet, where will all of that wealth go? Where will all of the wisdom of the technologies that uh, we see happening and are all about us and around us, quite possibly even some of those technologies causing a lot of what's going on in, in the human life, in, in, the, in the human bodies today. And he summed up something in chapter 3 about life. That there's a time to be born and a time to die. And he brought about the understanding of the certainty of death under the sun without God. As we press on into chapter 4, he's going to be dealing with the inequalities of life. And he's already dealt with some of that, but consider that after he has said that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him. He then goes on and he says in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 4, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. And wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full of or full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. I'm sure you've oftentimes heard the expression, It's lonely at the top. No one knew that better than King Solomon. With all that he possessed in pleasures and prosperity, he he still went about seeking to find the answer to the question, is life really worth living? In fact, let's revise that question for a moment. And let's word it this way. Is all that can be found in this life just a lesson in monotony and meaninglessness? Is all that can be found in this life just a lesson in monotony and meaninglessness? I want you to listen to the words of a seemingly successful man. I found and read this poem many years ago. Listen. There it is again, a twinge of pain, forget it, it will go away in the business of my day. I have places to go and things to do, 
a round of meetings with entrepreneurs, planes to catch and taxis to hail. I have life by the tail. But what is this painful wail? From the depths of me I ache. It greets me when I wake. Even in a crowded room of people, I can hear a haunting toll from the church bell steeple. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm a success, as anyone can see. I, I hurt. I feel an emptiness. This feeling, is it loneliness? Loneliness? I'm married with children, three. Yet at times I feel so alone. Maybe it's time to come down from my throne. It's not good for a man to be alone. You can have all that life can give you. And when it's all over, without God, you have nothing. And you end up just being alone. In the course of his observations in the laboratory of life, Solomon looked again at the injustices of the world around him. As he was pointing out in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, where he said, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment. That wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness and iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. He could see the injustice because of the wickedness of man. To discover that those plowing their way to success will oftentimes do so to their own harm. Climbing the ladder of success for many today usually means clawing and treading over the backs of others just to get to the very top, only to find fewer and fewer people along the way to enjoy and share the fruits of that long, hard climb until all that's left is a solitary figure. You. Solomon saw this progression to loneliness begin with an oppressive condition which we will label as corruption in which there were many oppressors followed by an envious competition which we'll label as covetousness, where we now find two figures, a laborer and his envious neighbor. Next, a brief exhortation toward an idle position, or what we call complacency. And finally, a companionless decision which ends up for a person being comfortless, a man alone in solitary selfishness. These are the points of these first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 4. And so we start with the first point, which is the oppressive condition, which we call corruption. We're told in verses 1 through 3, so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. People, in other words, oppressing others. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. What Solomon saw as he returned again to the injustices of man without God 
was a sinful world of selfishness. In fact, we could apply selfishness to everything that's happening in the world today. Everything that is terrible, everything that is wicked, everything that is evil. I mean, let's, let's face some current facts. While in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, we see and hear political partisan bickering about directives and guidelines and restrictions and so on, all the while preparing for another national presidential election just months away. And some idealistic people are believing that this pandemic should be uniting us as a nation. You've seen the signs, hashtag, alone together. While the worst of political hacks are weaponizing, quote unquote, big new word nowadays, are weaponizing this virus against their opponents, causing an even greater chasm and divide in our nation than even the Civil War of many years ago. Sadly, one person defined politics as the conduct of public affairs for private advantage. That may not be the attitude of a person wanting to get into politics to do some good, but then they get swept up by the so-called swamp, and not just in Washington, but just about in every city and town and state people live. And along with the political ramifications of this coronavirus, there continues fights over abortion and welfare and immigration and health care and defense. Take heed, folks. Take heed. Men, without Christ being at the center of their lives, instead of feeling themselves to be members of one great body and bound to each other in mutual support, live only to seek their own at whatever cost to fellow creatures. That's not 100% of them, but that's a great deal of them today. What does the Apostle Paul say about this? Paul was one who lived in a, amongst a pagan Roman society, even as a Roman citizen. Yet as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and even seeing the selfishness within the body of the religious leaders of his own day and of his own people. Paul, in speaking about the church in Ephesians chapter 4 and the gifts that were given to the church, you know, the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He mentions this in Ephesians 4, verse 13 and following. He says, till we all come into the unity of the faith, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, which is a complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love." There are some markers here, words that are markers for us as, as believers. Unity of the faith. 
the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, no longer being children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love. Folks, there are enough lies today in this world. There are enough lies being told to us each and every day ever since this pandemic began. And I know that we, we've talked about this from the prophetic standpoint, that in the last days, you know, perilous times have come, and these perilous times are all built upon the deceptions that have to be out there to get people to just become catatonic. Believe everything you're told. Unless your heart's open and your mind's open, your heart's open to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God, and you know through the discernment of spirits that something's not right. Yet we are still to speak the truth in love. And we are to increase the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There is no place in that whole statement that Paul makes for anyone to seek their own. That's the whole point. So in Philippians 2.21, what does Paul say? For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But those of us who are Christ, we don't seek our own. We seek the will of God. We seek the purposes of Christ in our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish those things until Christ comes. And then Solomon begins to see all of these iniquities and, and injustices taking place in his own reign as king of Israel. And things had gotten pretty corrupt in Solomon's reign. How corrupt, you might ask. Well, he had witnessed three tragedies. One tragedy was the tears of the oppressed with no comfort or no comforter to, to bring relief. And by the way, he mentions that twice. Behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, but they had no comforter still. Which says, which says a lot about the oppressors. The oppressors weren't coming from outside of Israel. They were coming from within Israel. And in fact, could have been coming from the very leadership of Israel. Think about that for a moment. The second tragedy that he saw was that the power of the oppressor, where justice should have prevailed, was happening. He saw the power of the oppressor to oppress rather than to be just. They had the law and they should have known the law. Leviticus 19 verse 15, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Now these, these are some of the barrages that, you know, two opposing parties in our own country are throwing at each other. Do we see righteousness? Do we see justice? Many times we don't. Don't forget that God is going to judge every nation, this one included. The third thing that he saw. Solomon saw no concern on the part of those who could have brought comfort on the comfortless. Once again, we turn to the Apostle Paul who points out in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3, remember them that are in bonds 
as bound with them. And them would suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Solomon was so devastated by what he saw that he decided that it was better to be dead than to be alive and oppressed. In fact, one was better off never having been born at all, never to see the evil works of sinful men. I'm just telling you what Solomon is saying in his text. And I have to say that because, you see, suicide was and suicide was and is no option for Solomon or the Jews. So we have to understand that from this particular point. That's not what he's promoting here. That's not what he's saying. But because of all of this oppression and all of this injustice that he saw in his own reign over Israel, by those who were just living under the sun without God. And he would almost have to include many of his own people who played with their religion. They, they, they played with their spirituality. They played with, you know, going, they'd, they'd go and, and, and offer sacrifices and then at night they'd go up to the high places and offer sacrifices to idols. Sadly, Solomon ended up doing that himself. Solomon had been a wise and just king, but, but the larger his kingdom and government grew, the more corrupt it had become. Is it any wonder that we're commanded to pray for all in authority? And that's something we should not stop doing until Christ comes. But what is lost in selfishness is sympathy with sorrow. What is lost in selfishness is sympathy with sorrow. Not just sympathy, feeling sorry for somebody in the sense of just kind of a a surface or superficial attitude. Because usually what that ends up being is, oh, you know, I'm really sorry for that guy, but better him than me. That might not be said, but it's probably thought. But who better than Jesus to set the proper example for all of us? In that great prophecy of the sufferings of Christ, in Isaiah chapter 53, we are told by the prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is despised and rejected of men. Verse 3, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We turned away from his suffering. We turned away from his grief. Surely he hath borne our griefs. I think we need to take heed of that in the context of what we're talking about with Solomon. Here was Jesus who had sorrows as a man of sorrows. Here was Jesus who was acquainted with grief for he was suffering on our behalf in our place, but we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And yet, in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. He bore our sorrows that we would bear the sorrows of others and bear those sorrows not just with with a sympathetic heart but with a caring action. What is so wonderful about our Lord and Savior is that he sent his comforter to all who believe so that we would not be without hope. Jesus sent his comforter, his paracletus, to all who believe, to every one of us who call ourselves Christian so that we would not be without hope at any given time in our life. Jesus in John 14 verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. You see how terrible it is for people in the world under the sun without God, without any faith whatsoever in their heart toward the one who created them? Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. He poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church and promised that he would continue to pour out his Spirit upon everyone who believes in him. We are not comfortless, folks. We are not comfortless through this time of lockdown. We're not comfortless today with all of these fears rising up. People afraid to breathe. People told not to go out into the sun which, by the way, is probably one of the best disinfectants ever since God created it. We're not comfortless, folks. We have the Spirit of God with us and in us. And, of course, Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Y'all are expecting me to go on, but I'm going to stop on that one. I'll give you rest. I've come to realize that there are a lot of people not resting today, even if they're home. It's even turned for some into some self-imposed exile. They refuse to come out. Well, who's... what? What word or what voice is going to tell them it's okay to come out? There's only one. The Word of God. The voice of God. Okay. i got to calm down and move on. So corruption, number one. Number two, the envious competition that Solomon observed 
We call it covetousness. Look at verse 4. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. To envy someone for what they have, even if it's right work, even if it's gotten in the right way, as it were. The story is told of two men, John and Dave. I've changed their names to protect the innocent. So there's these two guys, John and Dave, who were hiking one day when they spotted a mountain lion staring at them. John froze in his tracks, but Dave sat down on a log and he tore off his hiking boots, pulled a pair of running shoes from his backpack, and hurriedly began to put them on. John hissed at his friend and he said, For crying out loud, Dave, you can't outrun a mountain lion. I don't have to, shrugged Dave. I just have to outrun you. Well, that's pretty competitive. <laughs> I like this story. We'll, we'll kind of leave the mountain lion alone. A little boy and his younger sister were riding a hobby horse together. The boy said, if one of us would just get off this hobby horse, there would be more room for me. Is that an attitude that we're familiar with? You see, Solomon had discovered that honest labor was a gift from God and that man could enjoy the fruit of his hands as God's blessing. We saw that last time. But a real disappointment to him was discovering the heart of men whose purpose was to stay ahead of the competition and to make more money than their neighbors. Now, it is true that the one laborer mentioned here in verse 4 Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. So it's true that one laborer mentioned could have been the honest, hardworking man who was envied for what he had accomplished. I mean, it has been said that the better the work, the more is the man hated by those who have no heart to imitate him. And so even godliness becomes a source of evil, if you will, to a certain extent, if you understand what I'm saying about this. They can bring out the worst in people. Just you doing the right thing is what I mean. We have to, we have to go back and think about how Jesus himself was treated by his own people and by the religious leaders of his time. There was no way that, they, that any of them could, ever, could truly say, truly say, this man is a liar, this man is a blasphemer. They, they, couldn't, they, they said it themselves lying. And they said it themselves blaspheming. So that by the time now that Jesus has come before Pilate, And he says, I have found no fault in him. They begin to cry out for one Barabbas. And as it says in Mark 15, verse 9, But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release, will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. He knew. Pilate knew that the chief priests, the religious leaders of the Jewish people had delivered Jesus because of envy, because of their hearts. This competitive attitude is the result of sin in the human heart. Covetousness, competition, and envy often go hand in hand together. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that when you get a 
pick up basketball game or something, you know, that, that's it's sinful, or whatever sport you might play. But competition is sinful only when being first is more important than being honest. Competition is sinful only when being first is more important than being honest. We come back time and again to what Paul tells the church about our new life in Christ. When, when he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. And then he says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. In other words, glory for self. Who remembers that old song, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. <laughs> vain glory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, humility, sometimes humiliation, but most of the time humility, humbleness of heart. Let each esteem other better than themselves. We're called to build one another up, in other words, not tear one another down and build ourselves up. Better that we tear ourselves down and encourage and build everybody else. So he says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Solomon saw this and it burdened his heart. And it burdened his heart all, all the more when he began to move into that aspect of, 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 of his later life. When he succumbed to wives and concubines, when he succumbed to building things and providing things and having things, and purchasing things, and surrounding himself with things. Much like Charles Foster Kane, that old movie, Citizen Kane. He had everything, but he had nothing. Corruption and competition can damage our Christian walk. Then he dealt with the idle position that we call complacency. He says in verses 5 and 6, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Travail, trouble, a troubled heart. You know, the scriptures call a, a lazy, idle person a sluggard, one who wastes both time and opportunity mistaking idleness for quietness or rest when in fact he wears the stamp of a fool. He would rather eat his own flesh, as it were, than put forth any exertion of his own. 
And so Solomon himself in Proverbs 6 verses 9 and 10 says, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? Makes you wonder if he's talking to his own son. Because I know some dads think about some of their sons kind of that way. Oh, how long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. Here was a picture of an unbalanced life leading to self-destruction. Listen to what Paul says, something we'll look more in detail at this coming weekend, because we're going to be in this text in 2 Thessalonians 3. But in verse 10 of that, of, of that uh, chapter, Paul said, For even when, we, we, even when we were with you, this we commanded you. Notice it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Wow, if that was heated more in our country, I don't think we'd be in the mess that we're in today. And what's even sadder about what's going on today is is that since that great decline of our good prosperity, you know, good economy that was going on, all of that taken away because of this pandemic. And things got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point that all of a sudden people were filing for unemployment and then they're starting to get all of this stuff from the government and they said, hey, I'm making more money doing this and doing nothing than, than going back to my job. How sad is that? Paul said it best. He should be president. If any of you would not work, neither should ye. Simple. To the point. Of course, we know that there were certain you know, distinctive things that, that were going on. As I said, we'll deal with that on Sunday, but on Saturday and Sunday. But, but nonetheless, I mean, that, that's, that's the... Uh, a statement that that's what needs to be told to many people. You don't work, you don't eat. So do some work. Work is good for you. Verse 6 of our text is a description of a balanced life. Verse 6, better is a handful with quietness and both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Productive in his work but also careful to take the time to rest. The rat race is not his path, but he is committed to the normal responsibilities of life. Why have both hands full of profit if that profit costs you your peace of mind and possibly your health? So to conclude this section, let's consider James's assessment. We've been talking about Paul's assessment about everything. Let's look at what James has to say. Because he was also inspired by the Holy Spirit. When he says in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation. Remember that the word conversation means conduct. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, what is that? Competition. Glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. In other words, it's demonic. It is demonic. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. 
And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Our lives are, of, are to be a reflection of the God that we serve. Where we are, where we work, where we live, where we go, what we do. Our lives are to reflect the fruit of righteousness. And one way to quench that light is to become like those who Solomon describes in this past, in this last, in this next to the last section. The complacency of man. Lastly, he deals with a companionless decision. that of a person being comfortless by being alone. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, worthlessness, emptiness. Yea, it is a sore travail. Here is that solitary man, hard at work, no partners or relatives to help in his business, nor does he desire any help. <clears throat> But the prophet is for himself. He's so busy. He has no time to enjoy his prophets. And if he dies, he has no family to inherit his wealth. All his labor is in vain. In Psalm 39, verse 6, the psalmist says, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. That's rather sad. It's a sad commentary, especially when a person chooses that and does so without God. I've seen a lot of believers who have lost loved ones and have ended up to be alone. But they're never alone because the Lord is with them, the Spirit is in them. And they will find a way to give what they have to someone in need. But never would they sit back and just say, well, I don't have anybody, so I'm just, I'm just me. I have seen some people die that way and leave nothing. In a few cases, I've had to do some funerals for people that had no one sitting there in a, in a room for them. In a very humble coffin, nothing ornate.
great for whomever might have known him. And then he was laid in his grave. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 spoke a parable unto his disciples, and he said, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. <clears throat> and he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We have every opportunity to be rich toward God. By coming to grips with the understanding that what we have, we don't have just because of anything we've done, but everything has been a gift to us. Everything. Every breath we breathe. Every step that we take. Even David himself would say to Jonathan, I am but a step away from death. I am but a step away every day. The fact of the matter is, so are we. Every one of us is potentially a step away from death. Whether it is by driving on our roads, which by the way, it's been really interesting to me that in this lockdown, people forgot how to drive. And they're driving crazily out there. I mean, cutting you off, they're not looking at you, and they're just going, and, oh, I'm so glad to be back in my car, you know. Yeah, but you're almost killing us. We have every reason to lay up our treasures in heaven. Whatever we have here, we let the Lord help us in what direction all of that can go. Because one thing is for sure, nothing's going to last. So look at the contrast toward that with the child of God who can sometimes be in poverty but in possession of a great treasure. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10 says, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. You have Jesus Christ in your life, you possess all things. You possess everything that you need and everything that anyone else needs because you have Jesus to give. The treasure we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself. He is to be our portion. He is to be our joy. He is in our minds and in our hearts always, and therefore, he's always there to give and to be given. Let me close with this last statement in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We are not to live for ourselves.
And that's the contrast to what Solomon saw of people living under the sun without God. They live for themselves. We live for Christ. And because we live for Christ, we live for others too.